You're listening to TIP. Welcome to the first ever episode of Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. I'm very thankful to have you here listening to the new show, and I'm super excited to kick off this new podcast with a guest that I've personally learned a lot from and followed for quite some time, Chad Carson, also known as Coach Carson. Chad and I talk about how to get started in real estate investing, where we might be in the current market cycle in early 2020, how to find the best markets to invest in, and how to scale your real estate portfolio using creative finance strategies like seller financing. Without further delay, let's dive into the show. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Coach Carson. Welcome to the show, Chad. Great to be here, Robert. Thanks for having me. For those listening that may not know who you are already, walk us through your story and how you got to where you are today. Well, I'm 39 years old. I'm actually about to have a birthday this month and turn 40. So that's about halfway to 80 here. But I started investing in real estate right after college. I went to Clemson University, go Tigers. And I played football there and I was a biology major. So I kind of had this path I was going down where I thought I would go into medical school and sort of go that route. I was interested in medicine and biology and science. But uh, I was kind of tired from playing football and I just want to take a break. And so I decided for a year or two, I started reading some books on my dad's shelf. My dad has rental properties. And I started reading some books on the shelf and said, you know what? I think I, think I just want to try something for a year or two. I know I'm going to go back in the real world after that. I'm going to try to see if I can get into real estate investing, learn a little bit. Maybe I'll make a little bit of money. And, but then I can use that the rest of my life when I go back to you know, a real job. And I kind of got opened up Pandora's box and I never went back in <laughs> to the real world. And I've, I've been investing with all sorts of different types. I, when I first started, I was just basically trying to make money by flipping houses and finding deals for other people because I didn't have a lot of capital, didn't have a lot of knowledge, to be honest with you. I was just hustling and finding deals for other people. And my business has evolved over time. I have a business partner. We've been investing together for about 17 years. And we got into flipping houses a lot, doing a lot of short sales and foreclosures. And we eventually kind of survived the Great Recession and went into owning more rental properties. And that's more what I am today. We have a portfolio of primarily student rentals. We're in a small college town in the South, Clemson. And so that's kind of our our core product are those kind of older multi-unit, small multi-unit properties with student rentals. But then we also have some single family houses, got some, some other things we do as well, just kind of on the side. You mentioned that your portfolio is mainly rentals, but are you still doing any flipping? Occasionally. We're, we're more opportunistic flippers now. Um, I, I always thought flipping was a fun business, but I, I would give myself like a, a B plus in flipping. I, I was good at it. We made money on it. I was really good at finding the deals. That was always my, my strength, negotiating, kind of picking out the, the, the gems that other people hadn't found, sitting down and talking with a seller and, get it, you know, and working out a win-win arrangement with them. The actual remodel and fixing up and flipping was just sort of a, a means to it. We just had to put food on the table. We needed cash to build wealth. But I always saw like the long-term game is buy and hold income properties. Let's get income coming in over and over and over again, instead of having to keep going back to a job, which I, I saw flipping as is more of a job. It was a good job, you know, paid money, it was flexible, but it's something that we do now if it's a property that either, for example, we buy a big property or a, a lot and we carve off the lot and sell the house and flip the house and then maybe keep the lot or keep a, or maybe sell part of the property and sell flip part of it in order to generate some capital to keep the rest of it or something. That's, that's more where I would use flips today. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say there is that flipping can be a great source of capital, but a lot of times it's more of a job, whereas rentals can provide that nice passive income. You mentioned that you, you made it through the Great Recession, but it sounded like there might have been a little bit more story to that. So Talk to me a little bit about that. And I'm thinking maybe it has something to do with flipping. So what, what happened during that time period for you? Yeah. So it was good and bad. We, we learned a lot about ourselves during 2008, 9, and 10. And for history lesson, most people probably know this, but the Great Recession was a much, in many ways, started by the real estate market. 
And it was not you know one real estate market. The mortgage market overall crashed, and there was a liquidity crisis, not enough money out there. And, and so the way it affected us in 2007, we started in 2003 and then kind of started growing. And we were very young in the business in 2007, but we just sort of hit our stride where I was out there buying properties and making offers. And we had really good relationships with people who were loaning money to us, like private money lenders. And that was going pretty well. And so in large part, we, we had our like best, our biggest year in terms of buying volume in 2007. And a lot of those probably two thirds of them were flips still, where we buy and sell it, you know, made some $50,000, $60,000 flip profits, you know, some deals. But then we also bought some buy and hold properties and we got more aggressive with those as well. And the challenge was, is that we grew fast. We had like 33 closings that year. Whereas in years before that, we'd had, you know, five or 10 or 15 closings. And so that growth, again, kind of growing really fast. The challenge of that was we made some mistakes on some of the properties, you know, we, where we underestimated repair costs when we bought a property. Am I the only one who's ever done that in the real estate business? Probably not. <laughs> but I, you know, you, when you start doing things at scale and you make some mistakes on not one property, but like five or six properties and you're five or 10,000 bucks under budget or over budget on five or six properties, that, that starts hurting a little bit. And so the, I think that the story was we transitioned from the flip investor to, all right, we got to buy and hold a lot of these properties, some of them by necessity because we just overpaid for them. Some of them, just the market wasn't bearing what we wanted to sell them for. So it was, a, it was a transition point where we had to learn about capital allocation and the fact that we, I was really glad we had a lot of savings. We live very frugally and still do. So we made a lot of money in years up to that, but we didn't spend a lot of it either. So we had to eat into some of our reserves and we learned why cash reserves are a nice thing to have. And then we just also learned about pivoting. You know, in real estate, it's very entrepreneurial. And so we had to pivot strategies for a year or two there. We owner financed a lot of properties instead of flipping them, where we would find a tenant and get a down payment from them and become the bank for our tenants. And that worked out pretty well. And then we transitioned again and pivoted to more student rentals because that was a good niche and the rents were going up. So it was just, it was a, we learned a lot and also were able to, because we were able to survive and go through the market, there weren't as many, there weren't, there weren't as much competition after that. So there were some really good deals to be had in 2008, 9, and 10. With the talk about that market crash that we experienced then, I'm curious to get your opinion where you think we are in the current real estate cycle and how is that impacting your business? Are you thinking back to last recession and trying to slow down your flipping now because we might be towards the peak or or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I'll preface this by saying I'm really bad at predicting, obviously. <laughs> so you look back at 2007, you, know, you and I, were, we chatted briefly before the call about how we're both big Warren Buffett fans. And this is one of those lessons, wisdom that I, I really take to heart from Warren Buffett is that people who try to predict things are you know, so often wrong that we ought to just... It's just kind of entertainment. So everybody who's listening to this, just take this as entertainment for me. But I mean, I feel like just the, some of the things I notice in the market are that we feel like we're at a, at a peak or we're, you know, we're not at the bottom of the market. That seems pretty obvious to me. But like how long this will last, when it'll change, when the next recession comes, what that recession will look like. My uneducated opinion is that it doesn't seem like people are getting as many crazy loans as they did in 2005, 6, and 7. So it, you know, typically, disasters don't strike twice in the same exact way in the financial market. So I just don't know what it'll look like. But what I am you know, we always have to take that uncertainty and have a strategy. And so my strategy and our strategy is dictated more really by where we are in our career at this point. And, and so we are deleveraging a good bit. We're taking cash that we generate and save and we're paying off debt, even though it's low interest debt, even though it's, you know, you know we pay off 6% mortgages or 5% mortgages. And we've been doing that for about five or six years because we paid off the worst debt first, you know, the ones that had balloons on them where we had to pay off the whole balance in a couple of years or something, or they had a big adjustable rate mortgages. So we feel very comfortable with our debt structure now. We still do have some debt. And, and so that's been because we've just been cleaning up our balance sheet and making sure things felt safer and were solid. And that's partly because of where we are in the market, but that's also just more where we are. We felt like we've grown enough to where growing and buying more and more and more and more would not would get us some more money, yes, and some more growth, but we would we'd sacrifice stability and kind of our resilience in case we whatever we tend to face in the future. As a real estate coach who works with a lot of new investors, what type of investment strategy would you recommend for a new investor to to jump into given where we are right now? My go-to 
there's so many different situations for different people, right? And so one of the questions I would ask somebody if they're just getting started, I would say, like, why are you getting into real estate? What is real estate? What are you hoping it'll do for you? And some people are going to answer, like, I want a side job. Like, I want a side hustle that's going to make some extra income right now. And that, the answer for that person is very different for the person who says, I have a full-time job. I'm making good money. I'm saving a lot of money. I just want this to be a side wealth builder. Like, I want, I want to put my money into real estate and wake up 10 years later and have a lot more money than I do right now. And, and so depending on what that person said, they said answer A, where they're trying to make a side hustle. My recommendation would be to get your real estate license. And that's not actually what I did when I first started. I wish I would have though. I wish I would have got my license earlier. But I, I've become a, a professional. I try to be the most knowledgeable real estate person you could be. And, and get, you get your license, you get in the market, you learn about sales, you learn about rental prices. Just become the expert in one little slice of your local real estate market and know it better than anybody else. And by doing that, you're going to be able to add value to whoever the clients are that you work with. And you might choose to do what I did, like go out and find deals for other investors. And in that case, you'll make some really nice commissions or you'll make some nice partnership deals with other people because you're that expert. And so that's, that's my recommendation for getting started for somebody who just wants to make a career out of it. But for someone who just wants to get in, invest in the market, one of my favorites is always going and looking at your residence. So if you're, especially if you're younger, 20s, 30s, but even people who are in the retirement age, you can look at your residence where you are right now and you have to live somewhere. And so I, I love the house hacking strategy where you look at your, you look at instead of moving into some big, huge house, that's just a drain on your money. It's not really an asset. It's just, it's a, it's a liability. Look at your house like an investment and say, how could I generate income from this property that I live in? And the classic way to do that, like I, I moved into a fourplex building when I was 24 years old and I lived in unit number two. Rented out number one, number three, and number four. And I had 1200 bucks a month coming in. These were low rents, even by South Carolina standards. But I had 1200 bucks coming in. I had about 1100 bucks going out all in, including repairs, taxes, insurance, vacancy, my mortgage payments. I was living for positive $100 per month, living in a property, in a, in a property that's appreciating, in a property that has equity in it. And I had friends that were out there paying 1200 bucks a month to live in some dream house when they're 25 years old. And the difference between those two paths is just enormous. Like you start looking at the time value of money and compounding and everything else by making a choice for like five years of your life, a house hack, or at least just to live more reasonably with your housing. It's that one choice is just enormous. So I, I would recommend people start with that and start thinking about it. What do you think the most common hurdle is for those new investors that are just trying to get started and how can they overcome it? I think a lot of it's overwhelm. I've talked to a lot of people who I think they know a lot of the facts. They know how to analyze a deal. They know some of the basic type things, but they just don't know where to start. And I have found that's less about their intelligence or ability to understand these concepts. They're probably listening to your podcast. They're getting a lot of good information. It's more about like what, what's the next step for them? And I go back to... I was a sports. I played sports and football and loved basketball. I still play pickup basketball. And when you play sports, a coach would tell you, to just go back to the fundamentals. You're going to... One of my favorite coaches of all time was a guy named John Wooden, who coached basketball at UCLA. And I got a little book by Wooden. It's just like a gem. It's just got little one-page one chapters that have like just little nuggets of wisdom. And some of his wisdom was though that he would tell his teams who were championship teams, like 10 national championships in a row kind of teams. And he would tell them, you know what? The goal here is not to score the most points. The goal here is not to you know, beat the other team even. The goal here is for you to be the best you can today in today's practice. That's it. Then he would say, even more than that, your goal right now is to tie your shoes before you go to practice the best you can. And he would actually spend like an hour showing his brand new players how to tie their shoes and how to roll their socks up so they don't get blisters. And then, can you imagine these guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton sitting there for an hour doing something as mundane as learning how to tie your shoes? He would get them frustrated where they're about, what is this? What is this old guy talking about, like tying my shoes? And he would say, you know what the lesson here is, is that if you tie your shoes incorrectly, if you don't put your socks on correctly, you're going to get a blister when you go to practice. You get a blister, you're going to miss a practice or two. And if you miss a practice or two, you're not going to play as well in, your, in the game as you could. If you don't play as well in the game as you could, we're going to lose a game or we're not going to win a championship. You want to win a championship, right? Therefore, I want you to learn how to tie your shoes. 
And so my recommendation to people who get overwhelmed by the championship of real estate investing, I want to go get a deal and I want to get financial independence is just go tie your shoes. Like just actually like physically put your shoes on, go out in the neighborhood and start walking around. Spend two hours, walk around a neighborhood, find a for rent sign, find a for sale sign, find a house that's vacant and to start talking to people. Call the realtor who has that sign or call the owner who has a for sale by owner sign. Start digging around, asking the neighbors why that house is vacant. Who is that? Do they want to sell? You know, we, we could call that something. They call that driving for dollars or walking for dollars. It's a strategy to find deals. But I've just found that physical movement of getting in the market, getting something done, making some progress will let all of the other stuff kind of take care of itself. Yeah. I mean, learning from the books and the podcasts and the courses and all of those different materials is great. And you can learn a, certainly learn a lot of really good information, but really... I mean, like you said, getting out there, taking action, that's really going to be where you're going to learn the most important, valuable information. I mean, I learned a lot from books and Bigger Pockets and other podcasts, but I learned so much more when I just took the, the leap and did my first deal. You know, you learn so much from that. So, yeah, I completely agree. And we learned how to make mistakes too, right? I mean, I'm sure you didn't do everything perfectly. Like I just, <laughs> I didn't do everything perfectly. And I, I think that's the hurdle that most of us get. We are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are just people who fail very fast and, very, and they fail in ways that don't risk everything. And so if you can go out in there and talk to a seller and the seller rejects you, you make them an offer and they reject you. Like That's a failure, right? But it's a small failure. It's not the end of the world. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be going to feel awkward. But like you need to start failing like that like 20 times in a row so that you get used to failing a little bit. And then you get it under contract. You get one property under contract with a due diligence. And maybe you fail on that. Maybe you spend a thousand bucks on an inspection and the deal doesn't work out and you have to walk away from a thousand bucks. You know, that's not great, but that's not the end of the world. And I think that kind of habit, that muscle of risk and losing a little bit of money and losing a little bit of face when you go out and talk to people and negotiate, that's, that's the entrepreneurial muscle that a lot of us haven't exercised. And so that's why getting out there in the market is just really important. You'll read in the books that you're going to get offers declined and you know going in that that's going to be a piece of it, but it's so hard to really internalize that and feel it until you actually yeah. go out there and have an offer you know, declined. And yeah. that psychologically is so much different when you're actually taking action than it is when you're just reading it in a book. So walk us through how you run the numbers on a rental property using your back of the envelope analysis. These are all things I learned from like Warren Buffett and other people, right? And I, I often quote him whenever I talk about the fact that when you're buying a property, you don't need to have a fancy calculator, or a fancy spreadsheet. And I, I'm a spreadsheet nerd. So like maybe a recovering spreadsheet nerd, like I still use them. The quote I'm just going to paraphrase from Warren Buffett was, he said, if you need to use a calculator or a computer to buy an investment, you shouldn't have to buy. It. It's not a good deal. The point he's making is like you can try to be real precise with your numbers. You can try to be real exact, but like the best deals, even the multi-billion-dollar deals that he buys, they, they look good on the back of a napkin with approximate numbers. He's like, okay, because because he's estimating. He's using estimates. He can't tell exactly how much this company is going to be worth, you know, with their income for the next twenty years. He's he's running an approximate number. And yes, the the bigger the company, the more complicated. If you're buying a big multi-unit property, you might have three napkins instead of one napkin or three envelopes. But the point is, let's, let's just figure out a few kind of basic analysis tools that will help us kind of look at this property and know roughly, is it a good deal or not? So that I can spend more time pulling out the spreadsheet and doing all that. So that, with that said, the kinds of things I like to look at, I like to look at it from two different lenses. I like to look at the income and I like to look at the price. And I opt, often call the price the equity as well. So I want to see how good this property is at producing income. And I want to see how much equity am I buying day one? You know, in an ideal world, I would buy a lot of income today. Like I would, you know, I would be able to pay a hundred thousand bucks and get ten thousand dollars coming back to me every single year. That'd be a ten percent return for every hundred thousand bucks I invest. Ten thousand comes back, ten percent cash on cash return. That'd be great. That would be ideal. But and I and on the ideal world with equity was if I pay a hundred thousand bucks, I would like to have it be worth one hundred fifty thousand bucks today. That'd be really nice to have it buy it at a discount. And so that's the basic strategy. And then the formulas themselves are just different ways of measuring that income and measuring that equity. So on the income side, I really like cap rates. I like to look at a, a property and say, you know, if I had no leverage on this property, if I didn't use any debt and I just bought this property and paid cash for it, what's the, the ratio of today's income to the price I'm paying for it all in? And 
I have a goal for that. If, if, if it doesn't meet my goal, then I'm going to pass or I'm going to make a lower offer. I also like to look at net income after financing. So I don't always pay cash for properties. So I also bring debt into the equation say, all right, given my debt assumptions, here's my debt payment. Here's all my expenses. How much cash, cash flow am I going to have net, net, net after paying all those expenses you know, on a monthly basis? So I'll have a goal bit on that. So for on a if I'm buying a fourplex, I might want to make sure I have, you know, at least $150 per door or something. Might be a number I look at. And so if I had, you know, 150 times four, you know, that'd be 600 bucks coming in on that property. So those are two examples on the income side. On the equity side, it's just pretty simple. You know, I, I want to ideally I would I would buy at a discount. You know, when I was buying and selling a lot, I would always try to have like a, a 20 or 30% discount from the full value today. I was buying really good deals. I've learned, and this is another Buffett lesson over time, that some of the best deals or some of the best locations, you can't always buy at a super big discount. The, the really high quality locations, yeah, you might pay full price, you might pay 10% below value, but you get a really quality, rare property that over time is going to make you much more money than buying over you know, in a D neighborhood and buying it at 50 cents on the dollar. So the price is kind of a, a, in relation to your quality of the location to the amount of income you're getting. And I just look at both of those on each deal. That reminds me of, of the Buffett quote where he talks about he'd rather buy a great company at a good price than a, a good company at a great price. Exactly. That's the quote I was trying to remember. He'd rather buy a great company at a fair price. So maybe that's 80% or 90%. You know, That's kind of my interpretation of it. He'd rather buy that than buy a poor company at a great price. And he used to always look for poor companies at great prices. He used to call those, he called it like, uh, if you were a smoker, I'm not a smoker, but he said, if you were walking down the street and somebody threw like a cigar and it had like four puffs on it and you got it for free, he just picked it up and you got like the last four puffs on that cigar. That's like the best return on investment, right? You didn't pay anything and you got four puffs. That was kind of like the companies he used to buy. He used to buy these companies that were spiraling down, and, but he would figure out that they had you know, a bunch of silos of corn still that he could like liquidate the corn and make a bunch of money or something. I mean, I don't, he just, he, he would look at the assets of the company and figure out that if I liquidated the company, I'd still make money because the price is so low. That would be like, you know, buying some of these really cheap properties in D neighborhoods where it's so cheap, you know, somebody's almost giving you this lot, like can't lose on that. Right. Well, actually you can't because, you know, maybe you can't collect that rent. Maybe you burn out, maybe things change in the neighborhood and the next door landlord doesn't manage their property well and there's drug dealers like dealing drugs next to you. So I, I think the equivalent in real estate is people might be familiar with like A properties, B properties, C properties, and D properties. You know, it's hard to make money on A properties. Those are like the best locations and the best towns, you know, and you're you're making like two percent cap rates or three percent cap rates. And there's some really big money people who might play those games, but I, I found for us, you know, smaller investors, A properties are kind of tough. But we can buy in B neighborhoods and in C neighborhoods. And I define for myself B neighborhoods as the type of places where they are more owners than renters. So you might have like 80% owners, 20% renters in a B neighborhood. And then in a C neighborhood might have like 50-50, like 50% owners, 50% runners, but it's still blue collar. It's just, it's a good place. It's safe. When you get into D, D plus, there's still good people living there, but it's mostly renters, might have public housing, and it's just a different game. And, And so like, I'm not knocking those or saying nobody should invest there. But for you, if you're learning the business and you're just getting into it, going with a solid C plus, B minus is probably the place to play. And you might not get the huge discount like you would on a C minus, D plus property, but you also be more comfortable being in the business as well. Yeah. I generally find my sweet spot in that C, C plus, B minus range, just like you said. And it's tough for new investors. I know when I was getting started, I was very drawn to those D plus level markets because you look at the numbers on paper and you just look at the prices of the properties and they're very, very tempting. The numbers look really good, but what you need to take into consideration is the high risk that you're taking. And just like you said, you might not collect your rents or something else might happen and and it's just not going to end up being those returns that you're expecting. So you can get high returns there, but it's also super high risk. And it's it's super high hassle too. Like the, The risk is one thing, but uh, the, just the hassle, like I, I found one of the biggest reasons people get out of the business is they just burn out. You know, I bought a lot of properties from burned out landlords. And why did they burn out? Like they, they burned out because they bought the wrong property in the wrong location, or the deals I usually buy, are the, they, they bought a decent location, but they never fixed up the property because they overpaid for it. 
And so they just got worse and worse tenants. They never treated it, treated it right. And they never just ran it like a business. And so they, they didn't have systems. They didn't hire other people to manage their properties. And so I, I like to sometimes think about like, why are these people getting out of the business and make sure I don't do what they're doing? So I want to have systems. I want to hire good management. I want to buy a little bit better properties. And if you do all that, I mean, this can be a very passive business. There could still be hiccups here and there, right? But I, I was in Ecuador with my family for 17 months. And we had properties back at home, you know, 90 plus properties. And I would pay bills for an hour every Thursday. And occasionally I get a text here and there. But I had really good, competent people who were helping me on the ground. And I was taking Spanish classes and I was writing a book and I was hanging out, you know, I was taking siestas. So it's that's possible to do if you if you buy the right properties, build a good team. Yeah, that's a really good point about those lower class properties and neighborhoods and locations that I hadn't really considered. I hadn't really thought about the hassle part of it, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're getting into the rental property business, you're likely doing it because you want some sort of passive income. And if you're dealing with those low-end markets, it's probably not going to be very passive with all the hassle you have. For me, my my markets, like I said, C, C plus, B minus, maybe two hours a month total on all of that, if that. So if you're buying in good markets, you can definitely get some some passive properties. So what is what is a common piece of advice that you often hear other experts giving about real estate investing that you think may be misleading or you just think it's just not true? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. This is a good one. I think of someone specifically, I'll say what they say and then people can kind of infer from what it is. But the phrase that kind of rubs me the wrong way that some real estate investor teachers say online is this, you should go big or go home. Like 10x, you know, 10x your business, right? And the thing is like, that's cool and that's motivational. I've tried to take like kind of the opposite mantra that I actually want to tell people like, go small or go home. And what I mean by that is that doesn't mean you shouldn't get big. Like I'm not saying like those big businesses aren't great. What I'm saying is that you should have the smallest business possible that accomplishes the goals that you set out for yourself. And if you get any bigger than that, so that if the smallest is that you can buy 10 properties, you can get those 10 properties paid off and that pays all of your life expenses and you have and then some, you have a nice cushion. You're making $100,000 a year off these 10 properties that are paid off. Very low risk, low hassle. Now, it's paying for your lifestyle and you have free time now. Why take the next step? Why buy that extra property? And you might have a good reason. It might be because it's fun. It might be because you $100,000 isn't enough. You want to buy a Tesla truck and that's going to cost some extra money. So you need to buy another one, right? Like those are good. Those are fine. But what I find is that people sell it as you got to go big or go home because that's how you get this lifestyle. That's how you be like, you're going to be like me and drive, fly around on this jet and drive this big car like I drive. I, just, I find that kind of stuff cheesy, first of all, but I also find it misleading because the people I know who have the most freedom, the most lifestyle, the most flexibility have very simple businesses and they don't have these big, huge moving parts, lots of moving parts. And I found they have a lot more, a less freedom. They talk about it, but I, I would challenge people to show me your big business and show me how much freedom you really have compared to my little friend who has 10 properties paid off, who can do whatever they want because they have this nice little simple, simple portfolio. Yeah. I mean, if, like I said, if you're getting into real estate, a lot of times you're doing it because you want that passive income. And if you grow to that size, if you're starting to syndicate and you're buying multi-hundred unit apartment complexes, you're not going to be very passive. And sure, you can grow your business really big, but are you really accomplishing the goals that you really wanted to achieve in the first place? Is that really getting you to where you want to be? So it's something you really need to consider when you start to look at building your real estate business. And like you said, I mean, I've talked to people who have three or four properties and that's all they want. That gives them everything they need in life and everything they could want. And they're very happy with that. So now I definitely think that's a, a really good misleading piece of advice that, that people give. So what has been your biggest mistake in your real estate investing career? What would you do differently if you could go back and do it over? Yeah, I actually think it's related to that go big or go home idea. And rewinding back to 2007, when I was talking about how we bought a lot of properties, I think my mistake was borrowing goals from other people. And I think it's a natural thing to do. Like I think about how I have two young kids and you watch how we all learn, like how kids learn. You, you basically copy other people. They're, they're little copycats. Like kids just like, they look everything you do and they just copy you, copy you, copy you. So it's kind of natural that I was a new investor and I started copying other people. The, the, the issue is you got to copy how, like you got to copy the techniques. You got to copy the tools in their toolbox. I might tell you about seller financing and how that's a really good technique. 
like copy me, like use the language I'm using to try to negotiate it, try to do it first. But then when you step back and think about your goals and your why are you doing real estate and what does your business look like? That's the part that you got to be careful you don't copy other people on. So I was, I heard a lady who was really impressive and she talked about how she was flipping 50 houses per year. And it was my first or second year in business. I'm like, that sounds great. Like I understood everything she just said. I think I got her business model. It's just a matter of us scaling and doing what she's doing. We could do that. And we, we borrowed that goal of just flipping a bunch of houses. And that's okay. But like, why? Like, why, why are we doing that? Like, and so we actually, my business partner has probably got a better intuition for this than I did. In 2007, when we had this moment where we're flipping a bunch of houses and we kind of overstretched ourselves a little bit, he's the one who said, hey, we need to just take a pause and let's, let's reflect on this and let's talk about it. And we actually did it. We did that. We actually sat, we both of us wrote down on a piece of paper, like, why are we investing in real estate? Why do we have this business? Yes, it's kind of fun to be flipping and doing all that, but the, the fun part of that kind of wears off quickly. You need to have even bigger motivation. And it was really interesting. I, started, I wrote down some of the things I wanted to do in my life. And it was things like travel. I wanted to go hiking in the woods a lot. I love playing basketball, pick up basketball in the middle of the day, still do. A lot of these things I was writing down, some of them cost money, others didn't, but almost every one of them required a lot of free time and flexibility. And that was an aha moment for me because I was like, why am I trying to work towards flipping 50 houses a year when what I'm trying to accomplish is to have these big quantums of time where I can do whatever I want to do with my life. Could be flipping, could be traveling, could be hiking, it could be changing every year and doing something different. And so that encouraged me, that mistake that I made of borrowing other people's goals allowed me to pivot and say, all right, I'm going to build a business that prioritizes first the reason I actually got in the business and does give me some free time and flexibility. And then if I do grow, I'm going to do it more organically, or do it slower over time in a way that allows me to kind of balance those two. I really like that response. I've talked to quite a few successful people about their mistakes and because I think that's a really good way to learn. And I think that's the first time that I've heard, heard that one. And I think that was really good. I'm going to need to go revisit that myself. And I recommend everybody listening goes and, and thinks about that themselves as well. Are you really working towards your goals? Or are you working towards somebody else's goals? You mentioned seller financing, and I personally really like that strategy as well. So I want to dive into that a little bit. What exactly is seller financing? So seller financing just means that instead of getting the money for this property, the financing for this property from a third party, from either a bank or some other person who, who's not involved with the property, they're basically handing you over money at closing. That's what typically happens. Well, the seller financing, you're taking that third party out of the equation and you're negotiating with the seller of the property and letting them basically take all or part of their purchase price and in installments over time. It's something that people have been doing for thousands of years. Like I, I can imagine like some person, you know, a goat herder somewhere in the Middle East who 3,000 years ago, had, he had 10 goats and somebody else had you know, some, I don't know, some wheat or something. And they were going to trade with each other and one of them was worth more than the other. And so they had to like balance it out. And they said, all right, I'll pay you in a goat a month for the next six months. You know? And that was essentially seller financing. You know, that, this is how transactions happen. This is how commerce happens. And I find it interesting now in the modern world, we just assume financing always comes from a bank. That's very new. Like, that's very rare in the historical context. And so seller financing is something I had to sort of learn by necessity because when I first started my business, I was flipping and I was, I was not a W-2 employee. Like When I walked into a bank, I was not the best loan that they were looking for. I didn't have a steady income. I didn't have a lot of history. I was a 23, 24-year-old kid. And so I, I could get a couple bank loans, commercial loans, but I was not going to build my business on commercial bank loans. So instead, I had to get creative. And I learned how to, by just by learning from other people, how to negotiate with sellers and how to find, for example, a landlord who's owned a property for 30 years and he's ready or she's ready to get out of the business. And I sit down and talk to that landlord and they might not be expecting or wanting to sell to me with owner financing at first. When we sit down and talk about it, I might make them a cash offer for the property at a 20 or 30% discount because that's just what I need to get in that case. Or because I'm going to get private money at 10% or 8%, you know, a higher interest rate. But if they were willing to finance it to me at 4% or 5% and let me pay them over a 20-year period, that for me would allow me to hold that property and have a long-term hold and not have to flip it or not have to do something else with it. And so it allowed me to pay them a little bit more than I would just paying cash for it. So maybe I can pay, pay 90% of the full price or maybe even 100%. And so it was a win for them. They get a little bit more than I would pay them cash. 
They are, there's some tax benefits often for the seller. So if they, if especially if it's a really big property, like a million dollar property or half a million dollar property, that one of the biggest issues that sellers realize when they go to sell a property is how big of a tax hit they're going to take. And so by seller financing, it doesn't solve the problem completely. They still have to recapture some depreciation and some things like that, but they, they could defer a lot of their capital gain that they have on a property that they bought for 100000 that's now worth a million. They can defer that gain over time. They take a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, so they're not getting this huge gain in one year that puts them into another tax bracket, sort of turns their whole tax world upside down. So it, from a seller standpoint, it's got some tax benefits, it's got some benefits of not having to put that million dollars in the stock market or something else when they've been a real estate person for a long time. And for me as a buyer, it's a really attractive way to buy a property to get perhaps better terms to maybe a lower down payment and to be able to have a relationship with a real person. That's the kind of hidden benefit of seller financing. I talked to one of my seller financing people last night. We were at a local Christmas parade in my hometown. There's a guy who financed it to me years ago and I'm about to pay him off actually. And that's what I talked to him about on the, on the parade. I was like, oh, I'm going to think we're going to pay your loan off. We're, we're kind of got some cash and we just want to start paying some stuff off. And we had, we've been talking for years. We have a beer every once in a while. And he would he'd probably loan me more money. If I needed to do another deal, he trusts me. I've been making payments to him for years, sending him a Christmas gift. And that relationship with real people, I found is a game changer when you want to be able to use money to go acquire more deals. You have this long-term relationship with people. That's a business foundation of a good business. How are you finding these people or these properties that are open and available to this type of strategy? Yeah, it's, it's more of a, I found like a slow, kind of a slow negotiation, a slow dance. It's, they're not going to advertise in the MLS or advertise even with a sign that says, I'm going to sell or finance. If they do, I'd probably not be as interested in that one. They're probably just trying to sell retail and do something different. The, there's a couple categories of sellers that tend to be more likely to own or finance. That doesn't mean they will do it. But the first and foremost is a, a landlord who's owned this property as a rental property for a long period of time. And one of the, I discussed that a little bit in the, some of the benefits, but because they've owned it for so long, they've gotten used to getting that income coming in every single month. It's a good thing for them. The challenge, the reason they're probably selling is because the management of the property or just the risk of having to do it is the hassle of doing it anymore is not interesting. But if assuming they trusted you and they felt like you were a competent person who they could trust and was credible, they would probably like getting interest and like continuing to get some income. So theoretically, them taking their million dollars and going and putting it into something else that they don't really understand compared to having their money, their equity sitting on the, in this property that they do know and they do understand with a credible person and making a 5% interest rate instead of a 1% interest rate in the CD in the bank. That's actually a really interesting proposition for those kinds of sellers. And when you add in the tax, potential tax benefits, they're more predisposed to having seller financing be, make sense. The thing I'll say though is that it's a the reason it's a slow negotiation is that the people who have financed to me that was not their first choice like that wasn't I, I didn't ask them over the phone hey will you sell or finance this property to me it was more about let me just listen to them let me understand their situation why are they selling what are they trying to accomplish and I, I see myself sort of like a puzzle solver like and I, I tell them that too like if you will allow me if you'll put all your puzzle pieces on the table. I know real estate pretty well. I know the market pretty well. I'm a pretty creative guy. You have nothing to lose. But if you'll, if you'll put your puzzle pieces on the table, and if I can arrange those puzzle pieces in a way that makes sense for you, and you accomplish exactly what you want, and if it also accomplishes what I want, then we can make a transaction happen. We can help each other out. If it doesn't work, if I make you an offer and you say, that's no good, then you know we just lost some time. That's it. And so we'll, I'll have that conversation with them and then I'll make them those offers. And then I'll discuss those offers and say, here's how it would work. Here's what that seller financing would look like. And if I had made that seller financing offer right off the bat, without getting to know them, without listening to them, without understanding the context of what they're trying to accomplish, they would have said no right off the bat. But because I've listened, because I've kind of earned the right to make that offer, and I understand what they're trying to do, then they might say, you know what? I didn't think about that originally, but let me talk to my CPA and kind of understand the tax situation. Let me think about that a little bit longer. And now I've opened the door to the possibility of them saying yes. Do you always have to offer two different types of offers? Do you always have to give a cash offer as well as the seller finance? Or can you make just that seller finance offer? I mean, you could. I I have never made just the seller financing offer. 
The reason I don't is I, I don't think you ever really know what the seller's thinking. Everybody kind of holds their cards a little bit close to the chest you know, one way or the other until you make that offer. And so I actually like to make three offers sometimes. I will make a all cash offer. I'll make a you know 5% down seller financing offer with really good seller financing terms for 30 years at a low interest rate. And then I might make a middle offer, which is also seller financing with a larger down payment and with a, a shorter time frame. Because I know one of the objections they're going to give me on like a 30-year loan is like, I'm 70 years old. I'll be 100 years old when you pay me off. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's usually the first objection I get. And that saying that though, I've, I've had 84-year-old gentlemen finance to me for 25 years. So that's a conversation we can have. But I try to give them three different offers that accomplish three different things for them as a seller. That by noticing the response, I want to be face-to-face with them if possible. I want to have a conversation about it. And by they're going to tell me like why that one doesn't work, why this one doesn't, and, or why this one might. And the negotiation is more about like, which one am I going to take as opposed to saying yes or no to one offer. And I found that be a really powerful strategy to open up the conversation and talk about it. And one of those great parts about seller financing is you're not stuck with any given terms or structure or anything like that. I mean, seller finance, it gets between you and the seller. You can structure that deal however you want and however you need to, to get that deal to work. Whereas when you walk into your local bank, I mean, you're, you're given your terms and you can't really mess around with the structure much. They know what they'll lend. Specifically, if it's a government-backed loan, you know, they're very strict with that. So seller financing, I mean, it's great. There's so many different opportunities there. It's fun. It's actually very creative. I think when I first tell people, it's, it might be a little more advanced with the strategy, but it'll just tell people, like, show people how cool it, it can get if you really learn seller financing. But I had a couple who were actually moving from South Carolina to Delaware. They're in the late 70s. And they had these two houses in Clemson. And uh, I sent them a letter. I talked to them. Long story short, I made them my three offers. And they had an m- amount of money they wanted to get out of their houses because they were going to go build a retirement house in Delaware where they were moving to. And we worked it out where I paid them a really big down payment, about half of the purchase price. But these were expensive properties. And the rest of it, they financed at a really low interest rate. I think it was like 3% for a long period of time. So they got a big chunk of cash from me. And these were expensive properties. So it was like you know, $250,000, $300,000 maybe that they still financed and another $300,000 in cash that I had to come up with. But the cool thing was, the point I'm telling here is that I, I was able to acquire these really good terms on these two houses. But I acquired one, I got one clause in there called a substitution of security clause. And I was very open with them about this. And what I told them was, I don't want to keep your houses. These are expensive, big houses. I'm a rental investor. But I, what I do want to do is I want to work with you on this financing. And so I showed them, I said, I have three rental properties over here. Property A, property B, property C. They are worth a lot more than this $300,000 you're loaning me. Let's just, let's just call it $500,000. My three rental properties are worth $500,000. And I, I'm seller financed. You're seller financing three hundred. dollars what I want to do is I want to sell your houses and I want to use your financing and keep your financing over here on my three rental properties. And so by using what's called a substitution of security clause, and this is the kind of more advanced part of it, I was able to basically do a deal where I negotiated seller financing on one property. I was able to sell those properties and basically change the security of their note. So I still owed them $300,000. But instead of having that keep those two properties I didn't really want to keep, I paid off the mortgages on these other properties, these rental properties. I have now have 3% 30-year money or 25-year money on my long-term hold properties, all from a negotiation with a seller and getting one clause called a substitution of security. So that's, that's a long story short, the type of things you can do with seller financing that you can never do. I mean, I say never. There might be a bank who would do a substitution of security, a commercial bank, but you can get very creative to your benefit and to the seller's benefit. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Your traditional lenders are not going to do that. You might be able to get something commercial from a portfolio lender or something like that. But again, that's not your typical residential rental property loan. So now just to wrap up on the seller financing conversation, for somebody that's not ever done this or heard of it, they might be thinking that this seems super risky for the person offering the seller financing. How is the risk deleverage for them? Or how is it not as risky as it might seem for somebody offering seller financing? Well, the first thing when the seller's talking to me about it, I'm going to say, wherever you put your money, you want to make sure you understand it, you know about it, and you're comfortable with it, right? Well, 
you already own this property. You own this house here on this such and such street. And if anything happens to me, and this is, I call this like my Chad gets run over by the bus conversation. And I say, if, if, you know, if I get run over by the bus, I hope we've had a good relationship. I hope you shed a tear or two. You come to my funeral. That'd be great. But let's get down. Like, let's talk turkey here. Like, you're also going to be worried about what's going to happen to this property if Chad gets run over by a bus or if he goes AWOL and just doesn't do what he sa- says he's going to do. Like, I hope you trust me, but you shouldn't have to trust me. You have this property here and you can pick an attorney, like have your attorney review it, make sure that you feel comfortable, but you are going to have security through a mortgage, a deed of trust, depends on the state you're in. But you know, I, I owe you this money, but you have this real house, sticks and bricks. You have a mortgage against it. If I don't pay you, if I get run over by a bus, you call your attorney up, you pay them a few thousand bucks, they foreclose on me and they take this property back. And so the question you need to ask yourself, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, is are you okay taking this property back after I've paid you 10% down or 20% down? Or uh, very often I've put 30, 40,000 bucks in repairs into this property. So are, are you better off, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, taking this property back after I have done all these repairs to it? I mean, you tell me, like, if you're not comfortable with that, like, don't do the deal because that's the bottom line. And, but, but be sure to compare that to the riskiness of doing something else with it. Like, so what if you sold your property, you got your cash, and you put it in the stock market? You're an 80-year-old retired couple, and you put it, all your money in the stock market. And the, you know, I'm, I like stock investing. I buy index funds, so I'm not like, knocking that. But for an 80-year-old couple to put all their money in the stock market and like, go through all those roller coasters, there's going to be a lot of them who'll be terrified of that concept. And that's much more risky feeling than, not have, than having a mortgage against this property that they've owned 30 years, and they know it well. And, and so that's... I think that's the conversation you have. It's, there's risk. There's things they're not familiar with. So what's probably happened is they're not familiar with this. They've never heard of that. They haven't done that before. That's why I have to take it very slowly. Like This isn't like come in and you know, slick uh, used car salesman kind of person. This is like, I'm trying to be authentic. I'm trying to be real. I want them to know me. Um, I'll, when I was 25 years old and doing this kind of stuff, I would come in with a credibility package with letters from my football coach that I played for at college with letters from, and pictures of me with other sellers who have done the same kind of deals with me. And I, I've developed great relationships with these people who finance properties to me to the point where, believe it or not, like there's one couple, they were a Methodist ministers. They were the first people who financed the property to me when I was 24 years old. I became such good friends with them. They're such wise, awesome people that they were the ministers in my wedding when I got married like three or four years later. They were just awesome people. So I tell that story to people later on and I say, that's the kind, you know, you're not a minister, maybe you know, I've already married, so that's not going to happen. But that's the kind of relationship I want to build here. I want, this is long-term. I want to, you know, transparent. We're going to help each other. And if you trust me, I trust you. We make a transaction that works together. To your point, I mean, I think those are the two big things about seller financing that new investors need to, to understand is that one, it's an asset that they are familiar with and they've likely owned it for a long time because a lot of times when you're doing seller financing, They've paid the property off, which means yes. they've owned it for a long time. And two, like you said, they have a mortgage and they have a lien against a deed. And essentially, they have that collateral against your mortgage for the property. And so if things were to go south, they are able to take back the property and they're in the same position that they were previously. And they collected all of the down payment and everything else you've given them throughout the time. So they're really not in a poor situation if, if everything were to go bad. So... You provide a lot of resources that are free and content on your website through your podcast, your newsletter, blog posts, things like that. Do you think it's important for real estate investors to do something similar in an attempt to grow their personal brand and you know, in turn, grow their real estate business? Or are you doing it more as a standalone business outside of your real estate business? For me, it is an outside business. It's a secondary thing. It was more of a passion project. Like I used to... I've always been a real estate investor. I'm still a real estate investor. I plan to be one 30 years from now. You know? And um, so that's my core foundational money-making business. But I always uh, was a student. Like, I, I just love learning. So when I first started investing in real estate, I would like, be giddy to like, go to classes and like, take notes and you know, to read a book. And I mean, my superstars, I used to play football. And, like, I love sports stars. I, I'm not that like, starstruck about sports stars or singers or rock stars. But like you took, if you took me to like a seminar or a class where like my favorite author, like real estate author was, I was like, you know, giddy. I'm, I'm excited because I just, I love learning and I love going deep on a subject. And so when I had the opportunity, you know, about four or five years after I started investing to like start my local real estate group asked me to come talk, I think. And I taught a class and 
And it sort of just resonated just teaching. And so I think teaching is more my vocation even than real estate investing. And I just feel like uh, if I learn something and I've absorbed it, it sort of goes full circle when I write about it, when I podcast about it, when I share about it. And it helps me become a better learner, helps me become a better investor. And so that's why I've always done it. It is just, and it's just recently in the last couple of years, sort of by accident, but it's become more of a, a business too, because I started realizing I've got a lot of subscribers on my email list and that's actually costing me like 1500 bucks a year. Like, wait a minute, this, is, this, this hobby that I started is costing me money. And so I, I had to treat it a little bit more like a business. And I also found that you know, free content is always great and I'm always going to keep doing that. But there were sometimes people wanted to go deeper. They wanted a little more help from me. And so my, my business model with, with my Coach Carson brand is to sell education. So I have like a, a kind of a course that people take with me twice a year. It's sort of like a coaching, coaching groups, like group coaching where they, they can get involved with me. They can ask me more questions. We have office hours, have accountability as a group. And I also turned it into a business now that half of my profits, I, wanna, uh, I am donating to charities. So I'm, I'm trying to make this become like a, a social business where I can use education and the money I make from this, or if I have affiliate ads or anything else to build up kind of a war chest to donate and kind of make some, make some things happen socially that are important to me and my wife. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I know I get a lot of value out of reviewing your resources that you provide on your website. So definitely recommend everyone listening right now goes and checks that out. For those looking to connect further with you, where can people find all your resources and, and maybe connect with you on social media? If people go to coachcarson.com, you'll pretty much find all that stuff. Or you just search uh, on YouTube, search Coach Carson or uh, whatever your podcast player is, search the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast and hopefully I'll pop up. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put links to all of those resources in the show notes so you guys can go check it out. Chad, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's a pleasure, Robert. You ask great questions. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.